I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is curling. Yes, it's the first week of March, and that means the Tim Hortons Briar is going to kick off tomorrow, March the 3rd, in London, Ontario. This is going to be actually the final edition of the Tim Hortons Briar. It was announced late last year that Tim Hortons will no longer be the title sponsor for the Canadian Men's Curling Championship. So they will be rebranding in the future. But the Briar goes back a long way. We just on Sunday had the final of the Scotties Tournament of Hearts, which is nearing its 40th anniversary as the National Women's Curling Championship. Later this month, we will have the Men's and Women's World Championships as well. Well, at the same time as the Briar is going on, we have the World Wheelchair Curling Championship, both the four-person team and the mixed doubles discipline. Those are ongoing. And as I speak, the World Junior Curling Championship is taking place. So a lot of curling going on, not only here in Canada, but around the world. And the sport has undergone a great transition over the past 20 years. Really since curling entered the Olympic Games in 1998, famously here in Canada, Sandra Schmerler won the gold medal. Mike Harris on the men's side captured the silver medal that year. And in the 25 years since then, the sport has become a lot more professionalized. One of the charming aspects of the sport has always been the idea that these are regular people who go to their job, go play at their local club at night, and then you play down, see who's the best in the country, and they go to a world championship. And you have similar systems around the world. And you just see who wins the world championship. But with the sport in the Olympics, there's a lot more money being invested into it. There's a lot of individuals around the world whose job it is to be curlers. There are countries who employ curlers. They are salaried employees of the sport federation. In Canada, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but there are individuals who do not have jobs outside of curling that they are able to sustain themselves financially based off of their winnings as well as money from curling Canada and own the podium. And this has led to a lot of discussion within the sport about what the sport wants to be, what Curling Canada as an entity is there for. Is it there to support the grassroots? Is it there to win medals at world championships and the Olympic Games? And there's a sense that perhaps the sport is undergoing a bit of an identity crisis, or at the very least, there is a significant separation between the high level of the sport and the recreational level, a divide that is growing all the time and did not exist in the past. So with that as the backdrop and with the briar about to kick off, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to revisit a conversation I had with Brian Chick, who wrote a book entitled Written in Stone, A Modern History of Curling, in which he uses oral history to tell the story of curling over the past 30 years. It's very much a Canadian-centric story, but he talks about the inclusion of curling in the Olympics. There was a boycott in the early 2000s of national events by some top players, as well as things like the sweeping controversy from about 10 years ago, the professionalization of the sport, the increasing number of events on the calendar. He really does a wonderful job in this book profiling the slow but significant changes to curling over the past three decades. It's, it's a wonderful book, and I very much enjoy talking to Brian. He has a journalism background. He's also been a high-level player. He's done stuff with Curling Canada as well. Very embedded in the sport. So he has a wonderful perspective on all of these issues. So it was a pleasure to talk to him, particularly in the setting where we spoke, as it was on the media bench of the 2019 Continental Cup, which was held in Las Vegas. So this conversation took place in January 2019 between a couple of draws. You can hear the guys working on the ice around us. This is where the media bench was out in the open there about 15 feet maybe from the ice itself. So a really cool setting for this conversation. You get a little bit of the ambient noise of that, but 
uh, Brian does a wonderful job explaining the book and talking about some of the research that goes into it, as well as his thoughts on the way the sport has changed. So without any further ado, let's get right to my chat with Brian Schick. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So you wrote this book. You've self-published this book. Uh, it's sort of all you here. Why did you want to do a, a book about curling? Uh, I, I've been a curler all my life. I grew up around the sport. Um, it, it's uh, been, a, been a huge part of my life, both, both uh, professionally and just as a, as a pastime. And um, in, my, in my other life, I, was, I went to journalism school, and I always liked just being a storyteller. So those, those two things kind of came together. And uh, I, I always knew I was going to write a book. I didn't, I didn't know exactly how it was going to come together. And once I finally wrapped my head around it, it, was, it seemed like this was the story I wanted to tell. There were other books like it from previous eras, and there wasn't anything like it that kind of told the modern story. So that's what I was going for. So why, why sort of the historical perspective? I mean, curling has so many stories in it, and a lot of the attention in the sport right now really centers around the Olympics and the players who could make it to the Olympics. That's sort of the popular imagination of it. But why did you want to take that backwards look? I really kind of wanted to paint the picture of why things are the way they are right now. Like, basically the, the book starts as the Olympics start coming into the picture, starting in the late 80s when it was a demonstration sport in Calgary. And then all of the, the developments along the way that kind of pushed it forward into the sport we know now with, with the Olympics, with Grand Slams, with international competition the way it is. I wanted to kind of let, now that there's this huge swell of new participation in the sport, I just kind of wanted to paint the picture of like what it was not that long ago and, and why, why it is the way it is now. So one of the things, though, that I find interesting about that is the sort of the, the, pro, the progression that we've had from sort of 88 and Calgary until now. Like it's almost like a different sport in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. And um, I always say the, the funniest thing about curling becoming Olympic is that people started treating it like a sport. <laughs> there, right. All of a sudden, fitness mattered, and nutrition mattered, and coaching mattered, and other things that other sports have been doing for years and years and years that were always kind of on the wayside in curling until, until 98 in Nagano when all of a sudden, okay, maybe we should consider some of these other uh, sports sciences. And so, yeah, if you look at what curling was like in the 70s and 80s compared to what it is now, it's, it's almost night and day different. It's comical to look at, you know, just how, how unscientific it was compared to what it is now with the effort and the time that people are putting into it. So what was your approach? I mean, obviously, history podcast, I'm a historian professionally. That's what my job is full time. And, you know, you look at something like, like this book, I, I can't imagine that there's a lot of deep curling archives through which one would would spend a lot of time but but correct me if I'm wrong on that it's probably more than you think but what I really wanted to do in the way I told the story is I talked to the people who were there and the nice thing about a modern history and only going back 20 or 30 years is that a, most of those people are still around and so I could talk to you know uh, Kevin Martin and Glenn Howard or Colleen Jones all these people who lived through those those first Olympic trials and right up until most recent Olympics, I talked to 48 different people who have all been a big part of the sport during that time. So as far as uh, telling the story, there was no shortage of resources just because I wasn't going back that far. And the other part is, um, like, I just, you know, used the Google machine, <laughs> found articles from the time, found videos. Like, YouTube has almost, uh, in the book, I, I footnote every time, if you want to watch this story here's the YouTube link for it. So you can go back and actually watch the game or watch the shots that we're talking about. And uh, YouTube actually was a huge resource in, in trying to put this all together. It is kind of scary sometimes that you can fall in those rabbit holes <laughs> and all of a sudden it's 2 in the morning and you're watching Kevin Martin throw a rock through in the 10th end of the world championship. Oh and my you're God. like, how did I get to this point? That, like, that shot, I've, I've watched that end more than any, any human on earth. And I, <laughs> I promise that is, a, that is a fact because I use it when I coach a lot. And so when I'm teaching strategy, I talk about, I get this end. Okay, last end, what do you want to do? Keep it clean to score one. 
why are you leaving the guards there? Why are you throwing? And so I've I've probably watched that in a hundred times, and uh, that's that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But it is one of my well, just one of those things that that will always just grind my gears right. a little bit. Right. So so you, let's talk about that. You mentioned '98 and getting to Nagano. What was the the biggest change? Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about how teams were selected uh, or qualified for the Olympics. But for the athletes themselves, those people you talked about, that mid-90s, knowing that the Olympics is coming, what were teams doing to get set and get geared up for Japan? Well, a couple of things, a couple of things were different at that time. One, the, the trials process was different in that you just had to win a particular bond spiel to get your spot. So teams that weren't necessarily in the top 10 or the top 15 or the top 20, if they happen to win the right bond spiel got a spot at the Olympic trials. So that was a big difference at the time. And and also, just from the organizational perspective, uh, what was at the time the Canadian Curling Association, they hadn't been through it before. They didn't really know what to expect from an Olympics. They didn't know how to properly prepare their athletes. Um, you know, talking about bringing trainers and doctors and whether it's sports psychologists or whatever else. Part the, the entourage that travels with them now is probably as big as the team uh, or bigger than the team. But uh, at the time, that was all still... It took them a few Olympic cycles to figure all that out. Mm-hmm. And that was very obvious, uh, talking to Mike Harris and uh, Rich Hart and George Carries, the guys who were there. They're going, like, we, we didn't have a clue what we were doing, but neither did uh, uh, Curling Canada because it was new for them, too. So it took a few cycles to get all that together. And sort of who spearheads this? Because there's a lot of discussion now about the players have their opinion and they seem to have a lot of say with curling Canada and how these decisions are made and and I think some of that has to do with the finances of it all that the players uh, are in better position financially than they ever have been but back in the 90s everyone sort of flying by the seat of their pants sort of sort of what was it was there a lot of collaboration at that point no uh, I think it was a free-for-all I don't think anybody, <laughs> I don't think really anybody knew really what they were getting into and what it was going to take um at the time, it was just, you know, we were going to send some good curlers and go to try to win a tournament. And I think until they got there, they didn't really wrap their head around the fact that this no, this is the Olympics. This is a, a different animal, a bigger a bigger uh, deal than we were kind of kind of wrapping our heads around. So, um, yeah, now there's, uh, there's way more planning. There's way more resources. There's uh, the... Curling Canada does it better, and the players are more prepared. Right. And that's just a matter of, like again, having been through it a bunch of times, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, what 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 do you need uh, along the way. And uh, it certainly wasn't like that the first couple <laughs> <Yeah>. of cycles. <laughs> yeah, but that first one in '98, I think it's really interesting too because Mike Harris and Joan McCusker, basic. I mean, not to sort of dismiss their careers, but they basically have dined out on that. For, for 20 years, you know, they're good at what they do over on CBC, but they were basically selected because they were those, they were in the Olympics in 1998. Like, and so that first one really has, I think, stood the test of time in our memory, certainly more than I think O2 did. Oh, well, Mike was, was, uh, he lost something like three out of four provincial finals right around that time. So, you know, a couple shots go the different way. He's at the Briar every year. Right. Um, and he, every, everybody on tour knew who he was, but no casual Canadian fan knew who he was. Now, Joan McCuster and, and the Schmirler team, they were three-time world champions at that point. So it's not exactly like she was coming out of nowhere. Um, but yeah, once you, once you punch your Olympic ticket, you can, you can ride that for a while, especially if you get a medal. Um, but yeah, Mike, like I said, was, was, was not, certainly not a nobody, but uh, no casual curling fan had heard of him at the time. No, and good on them, too, for going out. And like yeah. I say, they won a medal, and, and certainly Sandra Smurler. And, and her story, which I think even non-curling people would be, would be familiar with the name, because mm-hmm. it's a distinctive name. Uh, and sort of her story was so powerful. Yeah, I mean, that, the, the whole thing, she was the, the biggest name in, in, in women's curling for the entire decade. And to yeah, like I said, three Scotties and World Championships and Olympic gold medal, and then to you know get sick and, and die within a few years of after that, at the age I think she was 37, uh, and just to to put that whole story together was uh, was really just 
incredible at the time and then to have it end the way it did was was tragic and the thing that blows my mind is like, i'm 37 now i remember right. thinking at the time mm-hmm. oh my god like she's so you know she's not that old right and i'm thinking what like this this is all the time i get it, it's really <laughs> it puts things in perspective yeah and and it's been so long now too that her daughter is representing saskatchewan yeah. this week yeah. at the uh, junior championship junior championships so you know we have another generation of schmirler uh, folks ready to take the world by storm, perhaps. Yeah, and that, that's that's a great story, and I'm glad that uh, you know she's keeping that that legacy going. But uh, like I said, like like you said, it's hard to believe how long ago it was because I I was in university when she died, and just remember exactly kind of where I was right. when when I found out, and uh, it's uh, just amazing <laughs> amazing how time flies, I guess. But uh, it was uh, yeah, she was an incredible talent, and it's it's really always going to be one of those mysteries how much more she would have won if she got to stay healthy for a few more years yeah so actually last year on the game of stones we did our all-time fantasy scotty's field and we were trying to figure (laughs) out who should be team canada and i picked jennifer jones she won she's won the most but there was some pushback of people saying it should be sandra schmerler because she won that first olympics and we don't know there's the unknown of how much she would have won because it'd be you'd be hard-pressed to say that she wouldn't have won at least one more yeah, that's that's a. Uh, it was. I mean, they were certainly good enough. Yes. Um, and when talking to Joe McCusticker, uh, they won the '97 Scotties without even really trying. <laughs> they they wanted it to be a tune-up for the trials, or like they 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 were all kind of getting off, uh, having babies and and working on their family, and they just entered the playdowns as okay. Well, we should try to make sure we're on point or ready to play for the. Uh, for the Olympic trials and no, they went out and kind of accidentally won the Scotties <laughs> because they're that good. Right. Um, and, uh, that, that, that just tells you right there what, how, how good they were. So if they, you know, give it a few more years and they're still fairly in their prime, uh, as, as curlers, yeah, they could have won a, a bunch more as far as who team Canada is. I probably give it to Jennifer Jones just because I would want to see another team out of Manitoba. Right. I'd give Schmerler Saskatchewan all day and Colleen right. Jones gets Nova Scotia. Right. And you could probably have Connie Laliberti or someone in there right. else yeah. out of Manitoba. Yeah, I think we had Connie Laliberti. And I actually didn't give Sandra Schmerler Saskatchewan. I uh, I had her be the wild card because I thought, I think she's more of a national team. And well, if you're talking about so Sc- Scotty's, Scotty's field, I don't know. If. Uh, you definitely want them all there. And, right. And I give it to Vera Peters for Saskatchewan, two-time champion. You know, all-time uh, field. You know, there's yeah. not that many multiple-time champions. Yeah. Wow. Well, so, um, yeah, that's that's a fun question. But uh, I would I would give her Saskatchewan and Jennifer just because she's won that much more. Or then yeah. obviously, yeah, uh, had a, had a little bit more opportunity, but. Uh, yeah. Either way, both both fantastic teams. Yeah, I feel as though we kind of, you know, obviously tragedy that Sandra Schmerler couldn't play longer, but we, it also sort of cheated us from seeing her and Jennifer Jones play a whole bunch potentially yeah. in the early 2000s. Yeah, and then mix, throw Colleen Jones into the mix, who was yeah. winning everything during that time. Yeah. Uh, that would have been a real murderer's row. Yeah, for sure. Year, that's right? the like, uh, yeah. Mount Rushmore of women's curling right yeah. there during that time. Yeah. So so let's, let's get into the early 2000s. And this is something that I think a lot of casual fans either don't really talk about or don't remember was the financial considerations that were going on. Kevin Martin sort of leading the charge to get teams to be able to have their sponsors represented at the Briar, and he just didn't play. And Randy Furby goes on that incredible run, in part aided by Kevin Martin choosing not to play. So, so when you were talking to folks about this era, are there still some hard feelings? Were people reluctant to talk about it? No, not really. Everybody was fairly fairly open uh, to tell the stories. I think uh, maybe in a couple cases they didn't want to say too much in fear of throwing somebody under a bus or uh, kind of reopening old wounds. Uh, the I talked to Randy Furby and Kevin Martin. They were both happy to chat about it, and they those are the two individuals I would say who are still harboring the most. Uh, <laughs> the most resentment towards each other because everybody else I think got over it and they realized that the um, the sport is better for it and everybody moved on and now we have events like the Canada Cup and the Continental Cup and you can wear your sponsors and you can uh, you know get paid a little bit um, but it's it's really Furby and Martin who are still kind of jo- 
jawing at each other because they're they're they were the rivals, probably the two best teams at the time. And yeah, because Martin didn't want to play in those briars, Furby had certainly an easier ride than he would have. But not to say that Kevin Martin would have won them either. So uh, what what people kind of tend to forget is that once all the boycott era teams came back into the fold none of most of the good ones didn't make it to the briar that year right so after everything was settled and they all entered the playdowns there was no glenn howard there was no kevin martin there was no jeff stoughton at that next briar maybe maybe stoughton might have been there but most of the big names didn't even qualify for the briar so furby had one more run where it was still it was technically a full strength field but none of the big names were there right does he sort of hold any resentment from people saying that he was aided by the boycott? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, he feels as though he's been cheated by that yeah. narrative, like, yeah, that so they don't get due? Kevin, Kevin Martin will swear up and down there should be an asterisk or something <laughs> next to two of Furby's briars, and Furby will swear up and down that Kevin Martin's an idiot for saying such a thing. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, I don't think it's, there There are, I guess, two sides to every coin, and they, you can you could make either argument, but there's no doubt that Furby won. They were one of the best teams in the world at the time. They won four Briars and almost five. And only two of those were in an era where uh, where the, the Grand Slam teams weren't in it. So it's... I think that my favorite part of that was when Furby asked me, well, how many Grand Slams does Kevin Martin win if we're in them? Because yeah, Kevin, yeah, Martin, Kevin Martin really loves to loves to uh, brag about, you know, I've got 18 Grand Slams, those are the, the biggest wins of my life, and so on. It's like, well, if you put Randy Furby and that team in the first 10 Grand Slams, Kevin maybe doesn't win two of them. You know, right. like, so uh, Furby turns that around on him, and I think I think that's a fair fair assessment, too. But there's no doubt that those are both, you know, the probably top two teams of that era. Mm. And then how do we situate the women's game within that? Because, we, you know, we've seen since Sportsnet bought the Grand Slams a few years ago, they've added women's events at every one now. And so where do the women fit into this story? Because when the men were boycotting like that, you didn't really hear a lot about the, the women's teams. Yeah, the interesting part there is they... they I talked to Colleen Jones and Joe McCusker, all these people who were playing around the time, they said, we, we weren't organized. We didn't have the product. We didn't have the star power. And... If if we were a little bit better organized, we would have been on board. But we weren't, so we weren't. <laughs> and uh, and then as a result, they ended up getting the the benefit of all the stuff that came out of that confrontation. They got the benefit as well without having to, you know, make the sacrifice. And so they're they're grateful. And uh, uh, curling is one of those sports where the the gender equality is is pretty pretty fair, fairly matched. Uh, I'm not going to say it's totally equal, but it's pretty close. And the the women got the benefit of that because of the all those teams that made the boycott and put up the and caused the uh, the conversation to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so how do we put it into context? I remember too when they split the men's and the women's world championships. Right, they used to be played at the same place at the mm-hmm. same time. And I remember when they split them. Colleen Jones, I, I believe it was Colleen Jones, said that this is bad for the women's world championship that they should be played together, that the crowds will only go to one, and, and her feeling at the time was that more likely that the men will get more attention now from the media and, and from fans and all that. And it, it seemed like with the, the push towards gender equality, that was maybe a step in the wrong direction. Did that come up at all in those conversations of, of the, two, the divide between the two? Not really, and it, it's, it's bizarre because I almost forgot all about that, but the... I remember when those worlds were together it seemed like much more of a more of a party it was more of a social thing because you had more teams you had it was a men's and women's event and this you had all the fans so um, it felt more lively Um, and I think once they split them up it became more about the curling again and uh, yeah maybe it did struggle for for a little bit but right now if you mean you look at the the women's worlds over the last few years they've been well attended and they have been super competitive and there's no doubt that it's a standalone event they don't need to rely on any of the guys there i did feel bad though i think it was a couple years ago that the scotties was in moose jaw and then the worlds was in lethbridge or something and the men's and the briar was like 
like, like in, in Edmonton or Calgary, <laughs> and then the world was in like like a cool European city. I like I felt kind of bad. Like they, they seem to go, they, they seem to have to go to smaller places it than d- the men. It does happen that way, but I mean they they can also do it in in the smaller arenas and bigger cities. You know, like right. But it, that's just true with every event. You can't keep going back to the well to the the same cities and expect. <laughs> to fill the arena every time. Right, and, and we're sort of seeing that a little bit, I think, this week uh, here in Vegas, where the crowds have been lower than certainly the last time I was here. Yeah, and I think that's just uh, considering the Worlds were here nine months ago, and yeah. uh, a lot of people made the trip for that, and that was a nine-day event. Yeah. So, yeah, you might have uh, gone to that well maybe a little bit too soon. But I, I would, I mean, I love coming, I love this event because people travel for it and people really love coming to Vegas. Um, it's just a matter of whether you do it every year or every other year and, yeah. you know, something like that. But, uh, it, yeah, you are seeing it a little bit this week because I remember I've been to everyone that's been in this building and the, uh, the crowds aren't quite where they, where they were in, in past years. Yeah, so uh, I want to get back to the mid-aughts a little bit yep. uh, and, and talk to about TV, right? So curling is a TV sport. Mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that. I think curling in person, it's fun to come. I think it's sneaky, not as good as on TV um, because, you know, you have access to the players through the microphones and all that. But there was that controversy when CBC took the Briar and the Scotties from TSN. There was a whole website about save our TSN coverage. Vic Router became the most lionized person in the history of Canada for about six months there. Um, is this something that when you talk to the players, they were conscious of? And does this come up in the book? Um I think it's mentioned briefly in the book. I'm laughing because I was working for CBC at the time, and I had nothing to do with the sports side of things. I was working for CBC News, and any time I mentioned to a curling fan that I worked for CBC, I I would get the full wrath of all of their just disgust about how could you put it on Country Canada, this digital network that nobody has. And it was it was just a it was kind of a funny time, and I think it was probably just just a little bit ahead of its time. I don't think people really had uh, caught on to digital cable yet or how to subscribe to new channels no, or anything like yeah. that. And yeah. Yeah, you know, It's two years too early. Exactly. You know, yeah. And it'd be like, well, right now, if you say it's not going to be on TS anymore, we're going to stream it. Some people wouldn't mind, but a lot of the uh, the older generation might give you <laughs> write some angry yeah, letters. The demographics <laughs> of this sport do skew a yeah. little older in terms of the fan base. Yeah. So that one was funny. And I, th- I think it came up just in some of the... Uh, talking about some of the politics of, of what it was like in the era but it was really more of a mentioning and because it that got resolved before the week was out I think I think they yeah. they ended up putting it back on the main network before the the tournament was over um, because it was such a fiasco but um, yeah I, I think at that point it was a mistake that was quickly ratified so it doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, lingering effects right, but it was because it's so weird that you know you go the, the teams go through this thing to get their branding to get their sponsors and then cbc comes along and says we'll put this on this channel that nobody has and, yeah. and so you're sitting around like what and, and it was very strange at the time and i remember uh, sort of being annoyed by it yeah uh, and it was it was totally inconvenient because obviously everybody loves watching their briar and their scotties and when you say oh so you, you don't get to watch it this year because it's on, you don't get that channel well it was like TSN for a while when nobody, a lot of people didn't have TSN two. Right. Oh, tonight's Briar coverage is on TSN two, and then again they were getting the yep. brunt of it again. Yeah. But now everybody's got what five TSN channels yeah. and six sports nets. So <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're covered now. Yeah, and that speaks to the expanding coverage too. You know, there's now what seven Grand Slams. The season of champions has expanded out. You mentioned the Canada Cup. There's this here at the Continental Cup. Uh, the juniors still get pretty much the same coverage yep. as they've always gotten and the the world championships seems to be the same as well but you know the season now goes from with the world cups you had those in goes from late august early september all the way into the end of april early may it's just this long slog yeah for the players and and you talked about the change in terms of you know these guys now hit the gym you know with all due respect to randy furby (laughs) he's not the fittest guy in the world and now all these guys have to be in part because that season is so long and did they talk about did the guys talk about that like sort of those old hats like the glenn howards who used to play like a five-month season and yeah. now he's out there basically I, eight months i asked the same question to a lot of these the both the current players and the former ones and a lot of the former guys said if, if this was the tour that if this is what i signed up for i wouldn't have done it 
Right. Because, you know, people like Al Hackner and, and that era, he said, oh, we'd play like three or four spiels before Christmas, then we get into the playdowns. If you don't win your playdowns, you don't go to the Briar and your season's over. Right. That was it. They'd play maybe six events all year. Hmm. And then now these guys are playing 11, 12 weeks before Christmas, and then the competitive <laughs> season starts. It's ridiculous. So uh, a lot of the, the old school curlers said, I, I could never do it because, like, we all had jobs to get back to on Monday morning. <laughs> right. And so between the time off and just the, the travel and, and the, like, the amount of commitment involved, a lot of those, those old school curlers said that it's, it's too much now. Not that they don't enjoy the product, but that they wouldn't have, they, they don't feel that at that time they could have put in the same amount of effort. Right, so that sort of leads to where is this all going in Canada? A lot of these people still claim to have full-time jobs, although they're out not at those jobs. I know they would, would work full-time in the summer and, and all these things. And, and But where's the end game? Because, you know, at an event like this, you have these European teams who are full-time curlers. And in Canada, the, the depth is so so rich. And we're trying to figure out how to manage the funding situation do you put it all on two or three teams and let everybody else sort of fight it out and sort of where do you land on this having talked to the players in terms of what the best approach should be for this country to continue to be the best curling country in the world at world championships olympics all those sorts of things well that's a million dollar question and i don't claim to have any of any of the answers um it it is we it's a it's a what's the thing i'm looking for it's a it's a blessing and a curse all at once to have so many good teams that all of those teams are what makes those other teams better. If, if we only had one good team, we could throw all the funding at them and they could you know, be, be fully funded and travel the world and have access to the best everything. But un- unfortunately, we have you know, 20 or more teams who can compete at that level. So how do you, how do you make it fair? You, you have to be, uh, and treat everybody relatively equally. Um, yeah, if you're at the top, 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 then you get a little bit more funding. You get a little bit more opportunity and some, some, a little more attention. But that's not to say that those those other teams can't break through. Right. And I look at you know Gushu back in in the uh, mid 2000s before he went to the Olympics. He's flying out of Newfoundland on his own money, playing every weekend. If if they didn't win, they're going home broke, and that was just a really expensive box field. <laughs> and same with Brad Jacobs coming out of Sault Ste. Marie. They would drive across Ontario for 10, 12 hours at a time to play a box in Toronto or in Cornwall or something. And uh, then, you know, if you don't win, you go home angry and you've got a 12-hour drive ahead of you. <laughs> so it, it can be done, it, but it re- it requires a certain amount and a very distinct level of commitment mm-hmm. um, and I think anybody who whines about not being funded should just look at those guys and say look it's not it's not a handout you have to really earn it and you have to pay your dues and put in your time and slog it out and yeah eventually if you're if you really want it and you're good enough you're going to get your funding when it's when the time comes yeah is there a greater concentration though at the top now than there used to be I mean you get to a national championship and it feels like there's five teams, that, five or six teams that can make the playoffs, two teams, maybe three, that can win. Whereas, you know, granted I was a kid watching in the, like the early 90s and didn't really know who everybody was, but I, I never got the sense that it was like, like it's sort of almost predetermined in, in a way that it feels now sometimes. Uh, yes and no. I think that there was always... Uh, you know, they always call them the have and the have-not provinces, and every now and then one other one surprises. But you you always get a good team out of Al- Alberta, Manitoba, and Ontario. Mm-hmm. And Saskatchewan's usually pretty good. And then everybody else, you know, so like during the 2000s, you had really good teams coming out of Nova Scotia at the Briar. Right. We, we haven't really seen a good Nova Scotia team out of the Briar for the last handful of years. And for a while, Newfoundland was a free space on the bingo card. And then yeah. all of a sudden, Gushu comes to 13, 14, 15 straight briars. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it was ever easy or predetermined. But uh, there are, I think the, the, the other question is, how many good teams don't go to the briar every year right. out of Alberta or Manitoba? Yep. Um, you know, I, remember I played at uh, a provincial in, in Ontario where... Glenn Howard won it, but Wayne Mada was also there. John Epping was also there, uh, and 
couple other names you would recognize. Peter Corner, like yeah. pe- people who were good really, really good teams yeah. that weren't going to the Briar that year. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and I know Alberta and like a lot of provinces are the same, but only that's kind of the, the fun part about the Briar is that somebody had to win that event to go to the next level. And you're only getting one from that province. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's the best way to determine your national champion. If like I, I love the Olympic trials and the Canada cup for that reason, because mm-hmm. in theory you have the best eight or 10 teams there. But if you're not going to do it that way, I love the, the representation that comes with the briar. Yeah. And you get, you know, the people in the, the hats from Nova Scotia and all yeah. that, all that stuff. And, and two, you get what I want and it doesn't have to be every year, obviously, cause it's not sustainable, but I like the, if you remember 2010, the, the Kathy O'Rourke team that makes it to the final, the Scotties, <laughs> like that, like those teams that those are the, that's when it gets really fun where it's people you don't expect yeah. to make it through. And that, I, that still to me is the most fun week of a Scotties that I've ever had as a viewer because of, <laughs> because of that team. Yeah. And, and I think you see it a little bit more on the women's side is that, you know, one team gets hot, um, like even at 05, nobody expected Jan Hanna to be in the final. Right. But all of a sudden, she goes through a tiebreaker, semis, finals, and almost wins the thing. Yeah. And if not a miracle no, shot. Yeah. Nobody saw that one coming. Yeah. And, um, I don't think you get that so often in, at the Briar, but uh, yeah, every now and then you get some dark horse at the Scotties yeah. <laughs> trucking through and end up uh, really kind of disrupting that narrative because you you expect it to be Homan and Jones in the final every year and. Yeah. Of course, it's not not always going to be that. No, we had a past couple well, years. Well, it was Engelot the other yeah, year. Yeah. Michelle Engelot. You could say Marianne Arsenault yeah. last year a little bit uh, as well. So, you know, in, in your travels and talking to all these folks, I, I, one of the things that is sort of universally assumed about curlers, and it, in my experience it's been true, that they're all accommodating and, and pretty good people with some minor exceptions <laughs> who we don't have to get into. But, uh, you know, is, is that a truism or is that actually real that this sport attracts good people um it's certainly true i i can't even imagine any other sport being so uh accommodating to fans to media to uh like just people in general you can go up and talk to any of these people and there's rarely a hint of ego or um, any any sense that you're disturbing them like they're 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 genuinely nice people I don't know if that's if the sport attracts that or maybe makes them into that mm-hmm. because if you hang out with enough of these people and you kind of see how everybody else is doing it you don't want to be the one who stands out <laughs> as oh you're the you're the jerk <laughs> right um, but it, it is it is certainly true that when I was doing like I, I interviewed 48 people for this book and most of them I took more than an hour to talk to and most of them were totally willing to talk for another hour. Mm. And, uh, like, Wayne Madal would have talked to me for four hours. I, swear, I think I think I got a, probably an hour and a half into it, and I was like, Wayne, I, I feel bad I'm taking up all your time here. And he's like, oh, whatever. Like, like I, he loved talking about it. He would have, he would have, there's a book in itself, just Wayne Madal stories. But uh, uh, almost everybody was super, uh, really pleasant to chat and uh, really excited to share some stories. And, yeah, for the most part, there wasn't anybody who I felt like I was really intruding on. Hmm. Um, and I think people like telling their own story or, or sharing their own opinions too. So this is, I, uh, once, once you get people talking about it, they're like, okay, yeah, I remember that. And I, here's what I was feeling at the time. And that, uh, makes for, makes for good stories and, uh, was part of the reason that the book kind of came together as well as it did. Now, but one of the things that TSN does at the end of pretty much every event is they'll do that video essay or mm-hmm. Vic voices over and it always alludes to at some point that curling is sort of the best part of Canada and it represents what Canada is and sort of the niceness the congeniality you know competitive but you know not in a mean way and and all all that and one of the things I've, I've talked to players about before and we've talked about on this podcast before is if Canada represents what the country or excuse me if curling is supposed to represent what Canada is in some small way the thing that I can't help but notice is that when I watch on TV or when I look out here on the sheets, it, it doesn't look like the country that I walk around in every day. Uh, <laughs> you know, just, you know, the, the, that makeup of it. Is that something that players are conscious of? Does it come up at all for you? Um, it, it comes up for me. I live in downtown Toronto, so there's tons of... I mean, curling is very, very white. Let's call it a call spade sure, shovel, right? Course, it's yeah. 
it is a very white bread middle class sport. Yeah. You're, you're not getting a lot of uh, immigrants or uh, in you know uh, new Canadians as they call them. Like um, there's, but as you say that that's that's what the country looks like, especially where I live. Um, and we we start to see more of it. There's are people. Of, of different ethnic uh, backgrounds who are, are who are starting to take it up, and um, I'm. It's it's a s- slow process, but I think it's it's starting to happen. Just based again on on sheer demographics, if you have that many people in in a in a town, eventually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some yeah. some non-white person is going to show up right. at your curling club and want to play. So, right. um, and everyone needs something to do in the winter. Yeah, you I know, mean, so. it, if you're gonna stick out Canadian winters you need to take up some sort of hobby yes, you're you gonna do. go gonna go crazy uh but as far as do people notice that on tour I I don't think it's in the front of their mind anyway right but it would be it would be interesting if um you know if if somebody of a different ethnicity started showing well you start seeing with the, with a lot of the Asian teams yeah. you know like China Japan and uh, Korea have put together some really good curling teams over the last few years and it's it is certainly changing the look of the sport, and especially with all of the money and effort that China's putting in these days too. You're, I think you're going to see more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just curious to see at what point because I think it'll be, it's inevitable where we'll have uh, a non-white team represent Canada at yeah. a world championship. I, I think it, it's bound to happen at some point. Maybe not in the next few years because there's no one currently at that level but uh, certainly it, it's expected. So uh, I've taken up a lot of your time. Oh no, so, I, I, um, I, I want to ask you one more. Sure. Uh, well, it's one that's sort of two questions. Uh, best women's team of all time and the best men's team of all time. Oh, that's not fair. Um, <laughs> but that's what makes it fun. Yeah, it's I not mean, fair. in the in the book, I kind of walk through. There was the in the last. 20 years or 30 years you go from Schmirler to Colleen Jones to Jennifer Jones to Homan and I think you could put any one of those near the top of the list or at the top of the list and that's not to take away anything from the eras before that but I think the curling has gotten that much better that um, it's it's really hard to put your finger on it but uh, the fact that I'm going to go with Jennifer Jones just because uh, not only has she you know won the I think she's tied for the most Scotties now, or won the most. Either way, she's still going, yes. and there's there's still a lot more things for her to win, yeah. and and the Olympic gold on top of that. So, uh, yeah, perhaps if Schmerler had a, a longer career, then we would, you know, yeah. it might be her without a doubt. But for now, I'll just go with uh, Jennifer Jones. Yeah, she's won all the things. There's nothing yeah. left for her to yeah. win, and, and that includes events that Sandra Schmerler could not have played in because yep. they didn't exist. Yeah, um, and then with the men's again, you could. The list is long, but yes. it, uh, if you're looking for a guy who's won all the things, you got to put Kevin Martin up there. You got to put Gushu up there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think and, people forget that Gushu won a gold medal sometimes. Yeah, well, because it, it happened 13 years ago. And, and what I, what what the joke is like he he won the gold medal, and it took him 13 years after that to become the best team in the world. Right. Yeah. He because he, he was yeah. not the best team in the no. world when he won the gold, but uh, you know he got he got good at the right times. Um, but I'm a, I, I say it over and over in the book. I'm a huge Wayne Madaw fan, and if you look at that that early early team of Madaw, Corner, mm. and Glenn and Russ Howard, like that that team was I, a powerhouse. Yeah, it's pretty unstoppable. Um, Those are four guys who skipped their own teams in Briars. Yeah, three of them won the Briar yeah. as a skip, <laughs> yeah. and and Corner had a pretty good run himself. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I. I I think that was probably one of the best teams ever. And uh, then, you know, again, like he's, I think Martin, Martin overall, again, has yeah. won all the things. And I think Gushu, by the end of it, will probably be at the top of that list. Yeah, and I think this Gushu team right now, I mean, it, I think it's pretty undeniable that this is the best team he's ever had, the four of them together. and But that Kevin Martin team, when it was him, John Morris, yeah, Mark, Kennedy, Mark and, and Benny, Ebert, yeah. Like, they were pretty much unbeatable. Yeah, um, uh, you know, and, and like they're going up against that Glenn Howard team, that was amazing, and, and they got the better of them more often than not. And you know, I, I suggested that perhaps we could have like a, a botcher Dunstone in ten years from now. We'd be talking about the two of them going at each other. 
in the same way. But that those two teams going back and forth was so much fun for four years. Yeah, and I, I, I had that thought about a week ago that Botcher playing the way he is now, I feel like, will be be at the top for the next couple of cycles. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, looking internationally, Bruce Moat's team playing the way they are yeah. are going to be a force for the next little while too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we're in for an exciting decade of currently coming yeah. up because there's a lot of really good young teams. Yeah, and the Swedish team that feels like they've been around forever, but they're not that old either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Nicodine team and Peter yeah. Crew, same thing. They've been around forever, but they're not that old. So. Yeah, well, Nicholas, I don't know, was he? He's, I think in, he's his in his early early thirties, and yeah. yeah, he's been to what, three Olympics already, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. we'll probably go to three more before he's done. Yeah, uh, it's just I think with him it'll be a matter of uh, how much effort he's willing to put in over the next little while, or whether because right. the just the travel alone, putting the putting the miles on, is exhausting, and you got to wonder at some point is it is it still worth it, or is it time to get on and. Uh, you know, live the rest of your life, but right. he seems to like it, and they're obviously really good at it. So Ob- you, obviously, you can't yeah. you can't take that away. Yeah, no, uh, certainly, and and I, I would say Sweden has to be the number two country right now, after Canada. It, I, I don't care about like rankings and stuff, yeah. but just in sort of looking at it on the competitive level, uh, you know, the, you arguably have the best team in the world in the men and the women. Yeah, coming and, out of Sweden, um, no argument there. The, the question is just the depth, right? So yeah. if if uh, Nicholas Eden breaks his leg right. you know then what happens right. yeah, um, the, there are other teams but they're not going to be they're not going to perform at that level where like I said we're spoiled in Canada where that you know if Gushu goes down we still got Kui and Jacobs yeah. and everybody else um, so it'll uh, it, certainly like Hasselborg the way they've come on lately is uh, again it's a it's a nice sign that young teams who put in the effort can get rewarded but you you have to take yourself seriously and not expect anything to be given to you and you have to put the put the work in yeah awesome so again the book written in stone a modern history of curling you can see how we got to this point with all these teams so brian you self-publish this so where can people go to find it what's the best way for them to get access the easiest way is on amazon um you can go to amazon.com.ca or whatever and just look for written in stone it'll show up um and then otherwise uh gold line and dynasty uh have are, are carrying it so it's either in their catalog or if you happen to be at an event where they have a pop-up shop you might be able to find it there too uh but yeah easiest way is amazon because everybody has access to that yeah awesome and uh leftbutton.com and your twitter handle at left button yeah follow so, all the fun and frivolity there i uh i'm a very active tweeter and fo- i follow the twitters so <laughs> if you want to uh give me a chat fire away at left button Awesome. So everybody, check, certainly check that out. It's uh, written in stone, a modern history of curling. Uh, we're here with the Game of Stones podcast. You can find that wherever you get your podcast to in gameofstonespod.com. We stole the name from Brian's curling, <laughs> curling team. Um, and so, you know, that's how this all comes together in, yeah. a, in a very nice way. So there you have it, my chat with Brian Chick, and again, written in stone, A Modern History of Curling. So with that, let's get right to today's historical headline of the week which today comes from the Winnipeg Free Press, and it's actually from Tuesday, February 28, 2023. Thistle Curling Club closing shop moving in with Deer Lodge. This is part of a wider trend that we've seen across the country, an unfortunate trend for me, that smaller recreational curling clubs are closing. And the Thistle Curling Club has been around for 135 years, founded in 1887 by curlers who separated from the Granite Curling Club there in Winnipeg. And physically, it has moved a couple of times. It actually merged with another club in twenty in 2007. So the club isn't exactly as it was in 1887, but now they have announced that they are going to have to close shop at their current location. They are going to merge with the Deer Lodge Curling Club in terms of the physical facilities. They're going to, at least for next year, maintain their separate clubs and their separate leagues. Each club has about 600 members. But we've seen this in communities across the country. Late last year, a club in Saskatoon closed. Here, a club in Winnipeg. We've certainly seen it in smaller rural communities across the country. They can't sustain the curling clubs anymore. And it's a trend that we've seen where the number of curling facilities, which used to be over a thousand, is now well under that. And for me, one of the questions is how much does the professionalization of the sport at the highest level influence the recreational level? 
I don't know if there's a direct correlation. I also don't think that the highest level of the sport is in a good space in terms of recruiting new recreational players. I think it was much better 30 years ago. The connection between watching on TV and then wanting to go try it yourself. I don't think we get that in the same way anymore. Even from 98, 2002, 2006, the Olympic bumps aren't the same as they used to be. And I wonder if that's related to the professionalization of the sport. You also have other factors associated with it, the the way curling operates, the seasonality of it, the way most leagues work and curling facilities across the country. And then cultural attitudes within the sport as well. There has been efforts to ensure that curling is an inclusive, welcoming sport. There are stories that that is not always the case. And the insularity of the sport and, and not being always a welcoming space has also, I think, influenced participation. And these are broader conversations that are going on within the sport. Also going on over on the Game of Stones podcast, which I do with my brother, Scott. We have a whole series of episodes devoted to curling as an inclusive sport, what the positives are, what it has not done well, and how we can work towards creating more welcoming spaces for individuals who have never tried the sport. Because for any sport to survive, particularly one that is as much fun as curling that you can do from the time you're five years old until you're 105 years old. And don't laugh at that last one. I've played with people, maybe not 105, but out there late 80s, early 90s. You can play for your whole life. It's imperative that we get new people playing because it's one of those sports that once you try it, it is hard to stop. It, it's a really a good time uh, with a lot of the stuff that Brian was talking about Again, I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but there is something going on in the sport at the recreational level that isn't matching with what's going on with the sport at the high level, the elite level. I don't have the answers to it, but at the level that I play and the things that I really care about around the sport, the contraction is alarming. So today's historical headline of the week is Thistle Curling Club Closing Shop, moving in with Deer Lodge from the Winnipeg Free Press. And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, likes, rates, comments, all that stuff helps us out. It helps other people find us. And of course, head on over to activehistory.ca. Wonderful article yesterday about artificial intelligence and how historians can use it, the role that it could play in history moving forward. Really wonderful piece. Highly recommend checking that out and of course all past episodes under the podcast tab and if you want to let us know what you want to hear on the show what's oldest news at gmail.com as i mentioned do the game of stones podcast you can check that one out wherever it is you get your podcast or game of stones pod.com if you're interested in some of the initiatives towards inclusivity welcoming space within the sport uh, we have a full category under the episode tab for those episodes or of course more generally we do also have a lot of discussion about what's going on on the ice full scotty's preview recap we got a briar preview as well so you can certainly check that one out over gameofstonespod.com or rooters you get your podcast so again thank you so much for listening everybody and we'll be back with you again next week for more what's old is news <laughs>